Hey everybody, all week this week, we're going to be playing special episodes from all of our other podcast series, including Woke at Work, Married to the Movement, The Momentum Advisor Show, America the Voiceless, and Sick Empire. Did you know that we have six different podcasts? We do. And today's episode is from Woke at Work. And Ray and Blanca loved interviewing Erica Hamilton during the second episode of Woke at Work in the episode entitled Living Your Portfolio Life with Erica Hamilton. Erica provided listeners examples of how she gives herself permission to dream up, to plan and implement a career that served her a purpose and helped her achieve her professional goals. And she encouraged listeners to do the same. It's a really brilliant conversation, and I want you to hear it again. This is an episode of Woke at Work from my wife, Ray, and her good friend, Dr. Blanca Ruiz. Check it out. The, the, the Breakdown. In this episode, we talk to Erica Hamilton, who has spent time in private and public sectors. She offers her experiences, lessons learned, and strategies for how to navigate. So have your pen and paper or whatever typing device you use ready to take some helpful and empowering notes. Welcome to another episode of Woke at Work. Blanca and I are super excited to welcome Erica Hamilton to the podcast. Um, I am really honored to have Erica with us um, on today. Um, It is still in the middle of the COVID epidemic, pandemic, I guess I should say. And we are still making do like we always do. getting this recording together and I just really appreciate you Erica for making time I know you've got kids home and and schoolwork and all the things happening so thank you for uh, making this happen even in the middle of all the craziness uh, that's going on yeah thank you guys for the invite it's wonderful to be here Erica and I met through a mutual friend um, named Matt. Shout out to Matt, who was a colleague uh, of ours at City Year, um, though we weren't there at the same time. Um, I met Erica through Matt, who was my colleague, who was her colleague first. And a few months back, um, Matt brought us together uh, and we met up for for dinner in the city, and um, it was really just Erica and I really proceeded to have like one of the most important connected conversations that I've personally ever had. Like I literally sat down. I, I feel like I spilled my whole life's problems and and guts out to you. Just like this is what's wrong with my life. Help me! And you just proceeded to just really listen first of all you didn't at least you didn't say you thought I was crazy but you didn't you didn't seem to think I was crazy um and you just spoke about um, my experiences and your experiences in a way that made me feel so heard I felt so heard I felt so understood and it really reminded me of the power of what can happen when women of color come together 
uh, we share our burdens, mm-hmm. we share our stories, and um, and 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 just the power and the connection that can come from that. And it was after that conversation when I was a hundred percent sure that we had to do this podcast. I was like, I have to do this podcast. Mm-hmm. I want other women of color to be able to yeah. have this experience, even if we can't be together. I just wanted them to be able to have a place where they could pull it up, pull up, you know, a podcast and listen to other women who are also having very similar experiences and feel as validated as I felt in that moment sitting and talking with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. uh, First of all, just for being there, but secondly, for being a catalyst for making sure that this podcast happened. You know, you guys, this is, this feels a little bait and switch because you didn't tell me you were doing that kind of intro because you were moving me to tears. Because when I tell you it's my life's work to try to create spaces where people who normally are not seen and heard can feel that, Mm. feel that safety to release and be candid and be vulnerable and know they are not being judged Mm -hmm. and can, can ask for what they need. That yeah. is the highest form of praise you can give me. So thank oh, you. And I can reflect it right back at you. Right oh back gosh. at you. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. No, honestly, it was like I went home. I even posted about it on Instagram. I was like, you all won't believe the conversation I just had. Oh my gosh. Women of color are black women. We are everything. Mm. Like we are just, we're so, so powerful. And that, I think that conversation happened in December. And Blanca and I, like we got together, I think it it was like the end of December, early yeah. January. And I was like, okay, we yeah, have to make, <laughs> yes, we have to do this. We have to make, make this happen. And so, um, Erica Hamilton, the woman who inspired it all. No. <laughs> <laughs> the woman who supports it and loves it. And honestly, to your point at the top of this program, the fact that we're living in COVID-19, like yeah. this no. is going to be such a gift when it's launched yeah. for people yeah. on the rebound. So yeah, yes. thank you guys, thank you. But the, yeah. And I've, that's all I've been hearing too, is like, like people so want this space or have these small spaces. So we are excited to have you share your gifts with everyone um, Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. Yeah. Erica, we want to invite you to introduce yourself. Like uh, what, how, what descriptors, what markers, what do you want our listeners to know about who you are, how you identify and, and, and the work that you do. So take it away. You got it. Uh, so there's a headline I usually give for myself. If if I could kind of sort of write the one sentence to be used to introduce me in every room I enter, mm-hmm. it would be Black woman, Afro-Caribbean, mm-hmm. if you need to know, mm-hmm. who is a, a coach, advisor, caretaker, and truth teller mm-hmm. in every room mm-hmm. that I enter. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what I think I'm supposed to be in the world. I will say showing up in the package I show up in, which you ladies know as well, being a black woman, adding that last piece of truth teller to everything else Mm -hmm. that I do means that it's a slightly harder journey at times for me to take in life and just being prepared for that than it would otherwise be. But Mm -hmm. wanting to figure out how to encourage more women of color to show up in their truth, whatever it is, and figure out how to help people adapt to that so that we don't continue to have to sort of repackage and redesign ourselves for every space we enter. Oh my Mm -hmm. gosh, that is so powerful. I love that you said that. Don't have to repackage and redesign ourselves. We're not at the affirmation yet. (laughs) (laughs) We closed the show. (laughs) Right. That is so good. Hopefully today, like 
folks who are listening is like, how do you get there if you're not there already? Right. Um, And I think that's an important piece. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So can you tell us about your journey to like your a bit about your journey? Like those are all of who Erica, that's who you who you are or who you be. You're also a mom, I will say, a mom right. to two teenagers, right? Yes. Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. In, so. this, in this time of COVID-19, two adult size you know, large person, human eating type of children. Lock that fridge, girl, lock it up. I have no words. You, you know, a padlock is probably being needed, needing to be installed. I will just say that. Um, but yeah, I think what's most important for your listeners, listeners to know, and it's something I think we have to decide when we reveal these truths about ourselves, is most people who don't know me personally know me as defined by my LinkedIn profile and my pedigree, mm-hmm. which quite frankly, I've had God's blessing and just the really good fortune of family and people I've encountered along my way who have helped me to achieve that. But I think the the real definition of where my journey started is growing up in New York, native New Yorker, uh, wasn't raised by either of my parents, was raised by maternal parents, um, didn't know my dad until I was in middle school. I uh, grew up in a one-bedroom apartment in a family of five, and so we made it work, right? Mm. Like, like we, we were figuring it out. Um, and, you know, the thing I tell people is it was fascinating to me, this concept of being a family, living in the, in the conditions and the spaces we lived, surrounded by love, focused on achievement, I actually never realized I was growing up in poverty until I got to college. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like saw one of those tables that was like, if your income looks like this and you were a family of this size, you're technically under the poverty line. You're like, oh, literally sitting in a college seminar in a lovely institution in Cambridge and was like, wait a minute, I think that might be me. And so <laughs> I, I, I say that who just knew? to say, who knew, girl, who knew? Mm-hmm. I say that just to say, I've always just had this, this through line in my life of thinking of everything that I wasn't supposed to achieve, every opportunity I wasn't supposed to get as defined by my birth, right? Where I was born and the circumstances I was born into. And to look at what I have been able to achieve, it actually empowers me, right? It, it really reaffirms for me that I actually can do anything I set yeah. my mind to, right? Yeah. And, and I got to figure out how to get people who are standing in my way out of the way. And that's mm-hmm. going to be a constant struggle. But, you know, in terms of the the technical, grew up in the Bronx, had the good fortune to meet the person who I would define as sort of my first like life-changing mentor, who was my high school guidance counselor. She encouraged me to go to college, ended up going to a lovely Ivy institution that transformed my life in terms of being aware of the world that was around me that I had never seen growing up in the Bronx. Right. Now and- talk like I know you talk about like your pedigree and your LinkedIn and not being that, but I mean, it really is impressive. Like you know, you, you did go to Harvard. I noticed that people who go to Harvard, they don't like to say Harvard. You said everything but Harvard. I went to a school in Cambridge. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I just um Yeah. I think it's Harvard. I think it's Harvard. You're right. I, I think I think what it's is but- Harvard, Alex. Exactly, people don't like to say Harvard, but I mean, you did, you grew up in the Bronx, you yeah. went to Harvard, and I know a little bit about this story because you shared it, but you talked about how 
you know, yes, Harvard opened up so many doors. Just having that on the resume, on the LinkedIn profile, I mm-hmm. mean, it immediately opens up doors that might be close to you after, um, otherwise. But you yeah. talked about how it wasn't necessarily the best experience for you. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. It was yeah. not. I came in as a student who, um, you know, was coming from, I came from a public high school, 5,000 kids, uh, a less than 20% graduation rate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. No one, no one in my high school had existed for like 20 or 30 years at the time I was going there. You know, it was expected that you didn't go to college, much less that those who did would be going to something of this stature. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. came into the institution alone, didn't have a clique, didn't really have a cohort, and quite frankly, was not as academically prepared mm-hmm. as my peers who were largely coming in from boarding and private and yeah. you know, well-heeled public schools. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was not great. And my mom also really fell ill, ended up having to leave school for a little bit to come home and take care of her. So all, all of those trials and tribulations, right. as I say to my kids, champagne problems. I can't complain about that because at the <laughs> end, I came out with a Harvard degree, which quite frankly, has a value to itself. Um, yeah. So yes, thank you for calling that out. Um, <laughs> I actually, and let me just say this, because I, I get a lot of shade about this. And I'm like, I, there are two categories of Harvard people in my mind. There are the people who don't say it because they want to create the mystique. And then there are the people like me who actually don't say it because I don't like that inflection that happens in people, quite frankly, especially white people. Mm. The minute they realize, oh, wait, you know, you are more than your package of a black woman. You actually oh, yeah. smart. Right? I don't like when that happens. And oftentimes, yeah. I'll be honest, in new spaces, I don't even tell people because I like to see how they treat me first. And mm. then they will find that at another time and come back yeah. to, treat, to treat me kindly. And at that point, I'm not interested in the conversation. Or the relationship. 100%. <laughs> I know. One joke in my family is that I didn't go to an Ivy. I went to Georgetown. My husband did go to an Ivy. Oh, don't start. My husband went to Georgetown, and he thinks thank that you. is the only school on the planet. Don't get me started. <laughs> thank, thank you. But the ongoing joke is that, and then I never. I would go to my kid's school for you know whatever, and then dressed in however because I I could do that. And then one yeah. day I, sw- I wore a sweatshirt that said Georgetown, and a parent finally spoke to me and I was like, it mm. took me wearing a sweatshirt with mine for you it to did. find a connection. The white male. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. It's like, did. wow. You really, yeah. but that is one of the things that I, I love about you, Blanca, is you are so Brooklyn and you are so Brooklyn, like everywhere you go, no <laughs> matter what, um, you know, it, we talk about all the time. I like fancy clothes and uh, heels and makeup and hair. Like I I like to be fancy and Blanca, Dr. Blanca Ruiz will show up in her knee length Tims and and her jeans. Yes. I don't want women to love it. I don't want anything to get on it. I'm like, listen, <laughs> get on my new Tim's. <laughs> no snow, nothing. So But it is an interesting conversation, like how we the different ways we um are are made to package ourselves, Absolutely. you know, in order to be um acceptable, whether it's what we wear or the degree that we're touting or whatever. You, exactly. Yeah. Our hair, one hundred percent, even our spouse. For me, it's my spouse. It's you know, mm. oh, you know, you're I think of myself as just a round the way girl, you know, mm. every black girl. And then somebody'll you know, like, oh, you're at Sean King's wife. And then it's like, oh, so now you're interested, right? So now I might be important. So I get it. All the all the different things that we, the hoops we have to go through in order to be taken seriously. So I yeah. get why you don't lead with Harvard. 
as that you said, sense. like ended up in a lovely position being the executive director of a fantastic organization, City Year New York. Um, I thought that was going to be the hardest job I ever had in nonprofit. It was hard, but I will tell you, it actually was a harder job for me as a woman of color working in the nonprofit landscape when I was that one level underneath mm-hmm. being the CEO. It was actually harder. Right? Really? Why? Yeah. Why? Because I wasn't the D. And I, I, there's, a, there's a myth I told myself for far too long before I became the ED, which was the, the, the role at the top of the house, like, like heavy is the head that wears the crown. Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I, I can't be the top person trying to run something because that's just too overwhelming. I think I need like five more degrees. I think that's another lie women of color tell themselves is we need yeah. more training. We need more prep. We need more yeah. education. Mm-hmm. When, when oftentimes we don't, we don't, right. we're actually exactly. ready. Yeah. And so for me, it was funny because I, for a long time before I became, and people really don't know this, like three people know this, what I'm about to tell you, but the now job. Is, now you get a lot of people know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now everybody going to know. But what was <laughs> funny was at the time when city year was looking for the new ED, I got a call from a wonderful human being that worked at city year. She later became a good friend. And I got the call, but I did not take it. I was so overwhelmed in the job. I was in a nonprofit. We just had a lot of transition in staff. I was ending up having to do like work literally like 16 hour days, like very little sleep at night. Didn't take the call. And I also was like, I don't think I'm ready. Like I'm sitting at this, like reporting to the CEO, but I don't think I'm ready to be the CEO. Mm -hmm. And so long story short, a friend who had also worked at City Year, and eventually called me and basically called me and said, no offense to your listeners, what in the hell are you doing not answering this woman's call? That's literally how I picked up the phone and my best friend said it to me. And Uh I was like, what are you talking about? And she was like, girl, the people at City Year just called me. And she had not worked at City Year in years, but they found out we were friends. And this had been maybe two months of this poor woman trying to reach me. And the friend basically was like, can you just take the phone call? I know you don't have time, but can you take it? And long story short, one of the reasons I wouldn't take the phone call was because I just felt intimidated by the seat and not ready for it. And mm-hmm. I can tell you after going in and doing it for five years, best job I ever had in nonprofit, but, but not the hardest, not the mm-hmm. hardest by far, because there is something about, especially as a woman of color, sitting in the decision-making seat. And I didn't, I didn't get to make all the decisions, but mm-hmm. I got to make a lot of them and sitting yeah. in a seat of power where you get to actually push back and like try to shape policy and practice in a way that makes sense for your people on the ground, right? So much well, my more question, like, yeah, your reputation too. definitely preceded you at City Year. Like I told you when we sat down to meet everyone, you know, by the time I came into the organization, you had just left um, maybe a few months before or, yeah, I think a few months before um, and the new ED came in. But every, like, every so often someone would say to me, do you know Erica? You know, have you met Erica Hamilton? She was our former ED. And it just kept happening over and over again. And I will say one of the things that was uh, that was very clear to me, even before I met you, just from the different things that people were saying um, when they brought up your name, is that you were the decision maker, but you often made decisions that did not necessarily, you know, mean that you fell in line with what was expected or with the status quo. A boat rocker. Yes. And I know you're being polite and that's, I know people were giggling when they would say it to you. Well, no, I mean, but I was honestly talking to people who I think were your fans, you know, and were just like, 
Yeah, like, listen, she did not do this. And headquarters was always like this. And she was like, uh, no, not happening. And so like being the decision maker and sitting in that place of power, particularly as a woman of color, were, were there times in which it was difficult and maybe being so um, sitting in that seat and having that kind of power maybe didn't serve you as well? Um, maybe because you were a woman of color or maybe it didn't have anything to do with that. Maybe it was just your worldview and your perspective and how you showed up. But were, were there times when it was particularly difficult to go against the grain um, and to kind of stand in that power, um, even when you really were sure it was the right decision? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. I would say, you know, number one, um, by the time you got there, the gentleman who had co-founded City or Michael Brown had already left. And I will just say he is one of the most visionary, but also one of the most, I think, committed to investing in his leaders type of leader I have ever worked with. And mm. so he, you know, when I took that job, he was one of the first people that approached me to to basically say, I see you. And as much as I have tried to create an enterprise and an organization that should embrace your leadership, the world doesn't work that way for people mm -hmm. who come in your package. Like he, he, he literally <laughs> said that to me wow. and basically just offered himself up as a resource in terms of anything you need, you call me. And I, when I say, and we had some things, we had some big things that happened while I was there. I would call this man day or night. Um, I, I once had, we once had, um, a situation where it was very clear a donor did not want to interact with me be because of my race, right? Really? We were there, and it was a pre it was a very big gift. It was one of those moments where this gift would have been very game changing for our organization to have received. Mm. And I will say it moved me to tears when he got wind of this, called, and essentially said to me, "We will find that money someplace else." Wow! And I, I'm going to call this donor. And just explain to him how our organization works mm. and what we value. Mm. And I, go ahead, Blanca. Go no, ahead. I heard you inhale. No, you, you so as you were saying, um, just like as you were talking through the C-suite um, and that piece, it makes me think of uh, when organizations or nonprofits particularly, because, uh, you know, like just thinking about nonprofits or it could be any organization, when folks... Um, are trying to figure out how to shift organizations. And part of shifting organizations is bringing more, quote unquote, diversity into the C-suite. Um, we haven't always seen that the decision maker, which I think is a distinction that you're making, right? That the decision makers need to be, that these, these folks that you're bringing in for diverse purposes are also decision makers. How do you do you even like it, as you're thinking about your work and your your like truth teller is your work really with people who are the, those women who are sitting in those seats or is it also thinking about how to shift uh the landscape for these organizations right like how do you, you know mm. like find yourself leaning on one side or the other because part of me is like organizations like this will exist right we'll be fighting racism for quite some time we'll be fighting for sexism quite some time so do I work with people on really empowering themselves? Um, you know, like, especially as mm -hmm. women of color, like, do we, do we empower ourselves um, mm -hmm. spaces or do I, you know, like, how do I spend, what do I spend my time on me 
or change yeah. shifting the landscape, right? And no, so I, I love what you just, I love how you ended that. What do you spend your time on? I will tell you for me, and I'm at a certain stage of my life, and I think it changes based on where you are in your career. I'm now on the, on the down slope, if you would, of career, having fewer years ahead of me to work than I have worked. And so when I think about what my priority is right now, I, I think it's shifting, it's myself and it's other people. I think depending on the size of the enterprise, it might be the enterprise. Like City Year, for example, that thing is so big. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's like a small country. It's like a small nation unto itself. And so when I sat in that seat, honestly, what I thought it was, was for me to figure out how to build strong relationships with other people in key decision-making seats and to, through those relationships, give them some insight on the experience I was having, especially in those moments when I wasn't able to do the things I, I think really needed to be done. And I thought there was some aspect of race or gender isms playing out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And to not just um, put it through the lens of, well, this is how it hurts me and this is how it hurts city or New York, but more so to also frame it as, this is how it hurts leaders of color and women of color mm-hmm. in particular in this organization and the sector more broadly. Because I want them to take away from whatever interaction we're having, wow, this is a moment I see how this is preventing you from doing what you need to do. I also see how this could be driving you out of this organization because we're not setting you up for success. What can I do to be helpful, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's working with them to to give them ideas for how they can be helpful. I will tell you a lot of times at City Year, it was them realizing, no, I can be helpful and here's what I can do. Help me think about how I frame my language, how I frame my approach. I think that to me is the way you change the enterprise because you can't do it alone. Back to like, women of color, like we carry so many bricks on our back trying to do the work of everybody. We don't take care of ourselves. And and that's a really big thing for me right now, like just making sure we put more time and energy into our own self-care, our health, our mental Mm -hmm. energy, like we don't do it. So I think it's figuring out how to share the labor with other people, especially other people that have as much or more power than you do. Yeah. Um, I know a big focus of the work that you do now, to Blanca's point, is on helping women of color, people of color, um, rise to the level of of being decision makers, um, holding some of those C-suite positions. I was looking at a study that was done two years ago um, called the Women in Workplace Survey, and it, mm-hmm. it highlighted that only one in 25 mm-hmm. um, C-suite positions were held by women of color. Mm-hmm. And and what we know is that it's, it's not about ability. Study Study after study, first of all, like I said, Black women are the most educated group. And it's because we've, you know, taken in, we've swallowed this message that we need more and more and more in order to be taken seriously and to have access. So it's not about ability. Um, In that same survey, um, four in, it was revealed that only four, that four in 10 women said that they have never had a conversation with the superior about their work. Never. And Mm -hmm. so if you can't even talk to the people in the positions um, to get feedback on your work, to build those relationships, as you said, who's going to recommend you for the higher level position? Who's going to, you know, recommend you for the promotion? It's about access and not about ability. What are some of the other barriers that you see in your work with people of color, with organizations that are keeping more um, more Black people, more people of color from reaching those those more senior positions? Yeah, I think two quick things I'll point out. One is on the institutional side, so the organizational side. 
I think it's organizations thinking good intentions are enough. Mm. And I want to be very clear, they are the start, but they are not the finish line in terms of being ready to in, induct, like take in people of color and also support them in being successful. So, so in the sector, I will say nonprofit and the private sector, you see a lot of work and energy around these initiatives to increase recruitment of diverse candidates and get more diverse people. You know, my real yardstick for measurement these days in terms of an organization being successful in its DEI efforts is measurements around belonging and inclusion, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The only way you know you're successful at doing something is if you ask the person who's on the other side of the experience you're trying to create, how are you feeling and how Mm -hmm. is this going for you? And I think as an organization. Yeah, I think you I think there are metrics that you can use to to sort of ask people around not only general culture questions, but also questions to the point that Ray's talking about in terms of preparedness for promotion, considerations for promotion, compensation. Um, you know, when was the last time someone talked to you about your career aspirations? Period. Yeah. That you ask that in a lot of organizations, especially nonprofits, and for people of color, women of color in particular, that's gonna be a single digit percentage. And that's yeah. embarrassing. That's yeah. terrible, right? Yeah. I think on the organizational side, there's that. And then on the individual side, one thing I really want to push women of color to do, and I I hate to add more work to our load, but unfortunately, as we all know, we we, we have to be the ones doing the work on this because people Mm -hmm. aren't going to meet us where we are. We got to keep going forward. Yeah. I think it's also about us like taking, taking more time somehow to figure out how do I build networks with people versus waiting to be discovered by people not only within mm. my enterprise, but outside of it, right? Mm. So like, I think, Ray, the story you talked about in the beginning is a perfect example. And you know, again, shout out to Matt Schaefer. Like you and I technically should not have connected, right? right. Because even though we were both at the same institution, just the nature of timing meant we yeah. were two ships passing. Yeah. And here we have, quite frankly, a big white man who's a, yeah. a fabulous <laughs> big white man. He's, yes, he's like love one of the most precious souls on the planet. <laughs> yeah. But he's the and one who was like, now to look yeah, at you got it. You got to meet. He's lovely. But he, <laughs> he connected us. And it's a good example of, I no longer work at City Year. I couldn't have helped you advance your career there really. But the fact that you, you reached out, mm-hmm. you were able to develop the network means, guess what? Now you have a new champion outside of the network that you typically would have cultivated at your job that yeah. you can call on. You can ask for sponsorship whenever you need it. That's connected to worlds that you aren't connected to. And I yeah. think for us, like, that's what it's about. Like, how do we think about building out our networks? but not in the ways that are just siloed in our enterprises. Like we got to yeah. move beyond that. So that's so good. I mean, so what do you like? So I'm listening. I'm like, well, what do I, what do I do? Erica, help me figure out like, what do I, what are some like good next things for me to do if I'm trying to figure out like, how do I move through? And I don't know. I don't know. Like not everybody is aspirational about moving up, but I want to, I want to make sure that what, whatever work that I'm doing, I'm being seen and I'm, I'm, I'm there. Um, yeah. And no. some it is upward movement for some. It's just like, I just want to make sure my work is acknowledged. Um, yeah. Like, is there, is there a, a way to approach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, do, yeah, totally. I think number one is realizing that there might be, you, you have to figure out in your enterprise, can, can your work ever be acknowledged? Like, mm. I think it's really confronting the brutal reality of, is this a space where I think, first of all, people that look like me doing the work I'm doing are celebrated. And being really honest about that. And the answer yeah. might be no. And if it's yeah. no, then you need to be thinking about, well, what's my transition plan looking like? Yeah. I think the second thing is, especially if you're fortunate enough to work in a place that's decently sized, so it's not like you and three other people, but there's a little bit more than that. I think really thinking about like, 
is there anybody in here who somehow holds identities and is operating at a level that I want to aspire to? Maybe not their exact title, but maybe elements of the work they're doing that I find attractive or is something I want to engage in and figuring out like, how do you strike up a conversation with that person? How do you develop a relationship, right? Like, how do I take you out to coffee? How do I get to know you a little bit better? I think then when it comes to sponsorship, what I would say, and this is a big thing for me, I think women of color like really need to sit down and think about what is it I need most right now in terms of defining what a champion would look like for me in my career? Mm-hmm. Like, is it, a, is it a woman of color? Is it a, you know, a woman of color who like, this is a good one. I'm getting a lot right now. A woman of color who's, who's, who's multi-sector. So like I work in the nonprofit sector, but I want to go to the private sector because student loan debt is killing me. Is that important for me to find someone who's made that leap? Because I want to talk to them about it. I think once you build that profile of what that person looks like, then it's about sharing that profile with other people who may be able to connect you to that person, right? Who yeah. honestly, I find, especially for women of color, if you're asking someone for advice and tips and guidance and you explain the context, which is I'm thinking about my career, I'm thinking about just my own growth, I find nine times out of 10, people will want to support that, especially if they share your identities. In other words, women of color connecting with women of color, I think can be very helpful. But I also think there are majority people who also want to help, but the ask has to be clear. And I think it's about asking people you trust to help you make the connections you don't have. That, that comes up that was so really much. No, it does. And it yeah. in all of the interviews that we've done for this show, the idea of sponsorship and building relationships and making connections, Absolutely. it comes up over and over again. And I love, you know, what you talked about, about women of color being intentional, like what sitting down, thinking about our mm-hmm. careers. That's mm-hmm. one of the things in our conversation that you that you that really stood out that you really helped me to do was to ask myself, what do I want? What do I want my life to look like? What do I need? What do I, oh what I want for my career? What do I need for my personal life? Mm-hmm. You know, I am raising a very large family, mm-hmm. uh, a young family, a super busy household. And um, I had to sit down and think about the ways in which my career was serving me mm-hmm. and my household and, and what it wasn't. And so um, one of the things that you talked about that I was so impressed by that I would love for you to share with our listeners is how intentional you were about building that life. When you got to a particular place in your leadership um, at City Year, when you when you knew that you were ending the nearing the end of your time there and you sat down and you asked yourself these questions, like practical questions, what do I need to make? You know, like, what does my income actually need to be? Mm -hmm. Um, How can I do that? But then also, what do I want my summers to look like? Mm -hmm. What do I want my time with my kids (laughs) to look like? Can you talk about your process of thinking through that and then share with our listeners how in the world you built a life that allows you to be in Europe um, (laughs) on somebody else's dime for weeks at a time doing what you love. Like that is so badass. How, how How did you do that? Right. And how do you predict bringing us along next year on somebody? Exactly. I love y'all. Pick a different spot, but um, I I know, I know, because it was Italy, and that was a that was a few good years. Mm. Um, so no, thank you for asking that. Which so there's a concept I just want to say real quick, so folks can look into it because it really, when I first learned about it, it blew my mind. It's this concept of living a portfolio life, right? Mm. Um, and it's a term that was coined in a book a long time ago called "The Age of Unreason" by a man named Charles Handy. 
And essentially what it is, is just if you, if you actually shifted your mind and really thought about living a life where I'm actually going to think about all the time I have. So like, for example, you know, there's 168 hours in a week. If I thought about how I wanted to shape that in the ideal way, what mm-hmm. would the allocations of my time look like? So for mm-hmm. me as a mother, it was, you know, how much, how many hours at a minimum should I, do I want to really be spending with my kids, right? Mm-hmm. And how many hours do I want to be spending in work, i.e. a traditional nine to five job, if that's what's required? And how much time do I want to spend on self-care or seeing people I care about? But literally you would like think of it as a pie mm-hmm. and you would allocate different pieces of, of the pie in terms of priorities in your life. Mm-hmm. And then sitting down and really thinking about, okay, what does my actual life look like? And oftentimes when you compare those two things, you realize you are not living your priorities. You're not living your values. You're not living whatever the mission is or the purpose is that you think you should be living. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, how do you, how do you set up? And usually for me, it was over a couple of years, but how do you set up a path where you can start to get closer and closer and closer to that aspired portfolio in terms of how you spend your time. So for me, for example, when I made this decision as Ray talking about at City Year, I realized like I wasn't seeing, I just wasn't seeing my kids enough. I wasn't spending enough time and and time was running out. You guys are both mothers. I don't know if you have this feeling as well, but I feel like by the time my kids go to college, I kind of, the window has kind of closed for me. Like if I'm lucky, you know what I mean? We'll still get more time together, but maybe not. But I like really sat down and I thought, what would it be like if I had like perfect time with my kids? And that's the joke you're referencing. I was like, I would have summers off. My schedule would actually <laughs> align with my children's. Yeah. And so for me, what it then became back to like the MBA and the analytics and all of that is, okay, but let's be real. You got bills, you have to eat. How do you do this? Okay. How can I think about sitting down and really understanding what does it cost to maintain our household? So this is like an exercise of sitting at my kitchen table Mm-hmm. getting in Excel, literally going through every bill we have, figuring out what bills are just foolishness. Cause we all have stuff that we, you know, put on autopilot as recurring debits in our account every month that we ain't thought about in years. Right. That actually, that actually is real money leaving your life. Right. So literally getting all of those things on a piece of paper and then really going through line by line and saying, do I really need this? Do I want this? So basically what you then come up with is two numbers. I come up with Here's the basic, the the lowest amount of money we need to live as a family in a year is this. Mm-hmm. And then here's the second number, which is aspirationally, if after I do all the basic things, I do all these other things I want, I spend a month in Italy, I take my kids to California for a month, I do whatever, then this is the second number. So you get like a low cost and then you get a high cost of living. And then essentially for me, it was really thinking about what are the opportunities I could try to explore that would allow me to earn that 12 months of income in a shorter time frame. So for mm-hmm. me, it was 10 months. Like, how do I earn t- 12 months of money in 10 months of time? Mm-hmm. Is it consulting? Is it coaching? Is it proposing an alternative to the way I work? And so I was fortunate enough to be able to, ex- for example, think about when I transitioned out of my city year job, my next job not being full-time, mm-hmm. my next job at some point allowing for a sabbatical, Um, and, and doing those kinds of things. But my point is just simply, I had to start with a clear understanding of what were the, the truths I needed to respect about the transition I wanted to make, which for me was money. And then also what were my priorities? And then it was about going out and talking to people about it, talking to people I trusted to say, this is what I'm trying to do. I would love for you to help me to think about how I do it because I also have to realize I don't have all the answers and that doesn't make me weak. 
right? Mm. Like I got to know how to ask the right questions and I got to identify people I can trust with my truth who can mm-hmm. help me figure out how to move further on my journey. And yeah. so, so that's kind of sort of where I'm living right now. Yeah. And so um, this just makes me think that, you know, as as folks are in this really interesting time, historically, I think, you know, where we are, it's just, it's a great point of reflection. A lot of the people that we have interviewed talk about like their moment and it's been like a traumatic moment that has like triggered it. And like, there's a lot that's personally happened to so many people right now, but this is a moment historically where we can stop, pause and reflect and really give it some time, right? We're giving a gift of some time, whether or not like we all enjoy it, embrace it and are feeling this lockdown and it's raising anxiety and it's doing all these things. But there is this moment for us to think about that simple question that you're like, am I doing my life's purpose? And that doesn't mean that I go back once I can get back to my job and quit it. Absolutely not. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Like, don't do that. It's like, don't quit it. Um, I mean, and for some folks you might, right? Like, but whatever. But that you start building a path and like what you just said, Erica, was powerful. Like, here's how you actually financially, here are some step-by-step things. So y'all need to rewind this part and be like, all right, first, second, Third, yes. operationalize stuff, right? We like to operationalize it. This is the, the step-by-step process, but like figure out what it is to start building that life. Cause I don't think it, it doesn't happen. And I think that's the, the piece. It doesn't just happen overnight, right? Amen. I like question as like, I'm thinking, what would you have told your 20 year old self? Like mm. what is something you would have told your 20 year old self? I mean, I'm sure you were badass then, you were badass now, but it's something you would want to, you know, like, That's a really great question. And you know what? No, I appreciate that. Thank you for that compliment. I so was not. I so was not. Um, I would honestly, I would have told myself, get what I'm telling people to do now, get out there and build more networks and more relationships. Mm-hmm. I got I mean, I got very lucky. Like literally, I came out of college, I went to nonprofit, I ended up going to grad school and getting in a ton of debt, like more debt than I realized, and basically mm-hmm. went to grad school to get a public administration degree. And upon graduation, when I got my promissory note, it was the first time I'd realized I priced myself out the damn sector. I basically mm. got a degree that was so expensive, I couldn't afford to utilize it in the dang on sector I really thought was my life's right. purpose to work in. Yeah. And so I was forced into the private sector. That's how I like to say it, forced into the private sector. <laughs> um, but I, honestly, it ended up being, again, and I, I, I'm not a religious zealot or a fanatic, but I, I do believe in, in God and I have tremendous faith. And, and I think he put me where I needed to be, but I ended up in the private sector. And I have to tell you like what that did to build my network and open my eyes and just make me again, aware of all these opportunities I knew nothing about because I just didn't, I wasn't comfortable. I think in my twenties, putting myself out there and actually being curious and exploring enough. I kind of lived in a safe bubble of what I knew. And so I would just encourage people to really think about how do I, even if I don't want to do it to build friendships, how do I build more diverse relationships just to understand how other parts of the world operate that I don't occupy? Because there could be opportunity for me in that. Yeah, that's so good. Oh my gosh, I am so grateful 
for this conversation. And you've got me thinking again about my por portfolio <laughs> life. And I'm telling y'all, as I'm sitting here in the woods, I'm thinking I'm not coming back to Brooklyn. Oh. I'm not a city girl. I want to live in the country. Okay. So now you just Vermont or wherever upstate, upstate <laughs> y'all are in, don't stay there. No. <laughs> I don't know. See, this conversation has got me thinking. I don't want to be in the city. Montana, you just decided to escape somewhere, Montana. Come <laughs> you. Wow. Okay, so now it's time for our wow story or our woke at work story. Um, I, I really like this part of, of the interview because one, we get to hear about what crazy thing happened um, to you that made you go, wow. But I also think it's really great for our listeners to hear these stories because sometimes we're confronted with situations and it can feel so isolating. Like, oh my gosh, is there something wrong with me? You know, why did this person think they could say this? Or why did this thing happen to me? And I've been so surprised at the number of women of color that I've spoken with that when they hear um, a story, they're like, what? That you you went through that too, or you had that experience too. I thought it was just me. And so I feel like this is a great opportunity for us to um, you know, just let each other know that we're not alone. We all experience crazy stuff. And sometimes we handle it well, sometimes we don't. Sometimes, you know, like when you look back on an argument and you're like, man, I wish I had said this, or I wish I had I wish I had done that. So Erica, what is um what's your wow story? What is your oh my gosh? Did that really just happen story? Yeah. So I have a, I think I have a good one um, <laughs> because it, this didn't happen in my presence. And so there's mm. a teachable mm. moment here for this one. Uh, so was in a position, I will not disclose who with, um, and essentially while sitting at my desk one day, got a call from a colleague who was in a different department, but the same level as me. So same level of seniority. Mm -hmm. and, and a friend, but people did not publicly know how close we were um, mm -hmm. as friends. Uh, and a white woman. Let me just give you the whole picture. And she essentially called and asked me if I had a couple minutes. She wanted to talk to me about something. And I did. And she essentially asked me to close my door, um, asked me if I was sitting down, and started started giggling. And she this was like, sounds so this like the opening, the way she opened this conversation <laughs> up, I'd have been like, wait a minute. And so she started laughing and she said, you know, I got to let off some nervous energy. So, you know, it's, this is not funny, but, but, but it is funny in the sense of irony. And so she basically conveyed to me that she had just gotten out of a meeting that was with, let's call it the, the president of this enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. And essentially in this meeting, my department came up and it was a meeting with the senior, the president's senior team. Um, and it was a, a meeting talking about um, understanding how to shape something, let's say shape a program um, that had to meet the needs of kids living in poverty, right? Mm -hmm. And when they were talking about my department, the president in front of his senior team says, I, I, I don't think that Erica is going to understand what kids like that need. 
Oh. And, and this is the president oh. is a white man. Let me finish painting the picture. <laughs> okay. right. um, and given her background, she's she's out. You know, she just is so far removed from these children's circumstances. I oh. I, I want to figure out like who on our team, and this team was a team of white people, by the way, mm-hmm. is best positioned to be a thought partner to help her figure out how to design this offering. What? And In so the- I. Should- <laughs> I wish I could see Blanca's face right now in particular Mm -hmm. because, Ray, I can hear you laughing. Blanca, you're silent. I hear the hmm. Listen, I mean, okay. Um, And so my friend who was in this meeting who kind of also did a little side eye, like what in the hell is he talking about? She, trying to be productive, said she offered in the meeting well, instead of us just deciding who on our team should be her thought partner, perhaps it might be worth it for you to pick up the phone and talk to her to share your concerns to, first of all, make sure that are they valid? Because they might not be valid. And she knew for a fact that they weren't. But secondly, so you're also communicating these, these perspectives directly to her, and she's not hearing them secondhand, to which this individual respond, responded, um, you know, I, I, I'm not really comfortable with that because, you know, I, I feel like she eats people. Mm. Oh, mm. Um, you know, to which, and my friend, I had one friend in the room and then had another friend who also at the time was, was more senior than me and, and also was kind of like, what in the world is going on? So long story short, this is a good example of a wow moment that didn't take place in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I think conveys a really important lesson for women of color, which is the importance of sponsorship and championship in rooms that you were not in, that you were being discussed mm-hmm. in, and the importance of building those networks and those relationships so that even when you're not there, people can speak on your behalf and refute and correct misinterpretations, not so much just with the president, but also with other people in the room who I, I have to work with, some of whom right. I've never worked with, who are now developing this hmm. definition of my persona you know, also having to be the black woman, one of the few black women in this leadership seat, this is now how I was being caricatured by the person running the enterprise. As someone who eats right. people. Correct. That was that's literally, right. that term has like, stuck with I me. mean, they didn't use the word aggressive, short of no. using the angry and, you know, eat people. Right. And uh, Like, it's a new, it's a new oh, one. Exactly. Yeah, right. That, was, that one's new. To yeah, me. yeah, yeah. I was like, eat yeah. people. Like, no, I, 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 had I, don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm like... Yeah, yeah. Come, come for me. See what happens. Exactly. And I literally had to like ask her, "Are you sure that's what he said?" She's like, "No, I wrote it down." And let me, let me, she was like, "There were a couple of us that were a little stunned when he said this." But as I have shared, like my reputation, especially over the course of my career, has increasingly grown as being somebody. I am always going to speak the truth, even when you mm-hmm. might not want to hear it. And I think oftentimes that puts me in situations where people want to ascribe that to me being angry. Yeah, or difficult to work with. One hundred percent. It's about not agreeing with your point of perspective and wanting to engage in a data-driven debate to figure out like who's right in this situation, not just who has the most power. Yeah, and and then like you're so good, and that's where like that's where I would say like that's where it's your your work, like not you as an Erica, but like when people are ascribing what you're saying Mm -hmm. to who you are as a person and drawing all these judgments, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what is that saying about what you are already believing about women, black women, 
black women who speak up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, That's right. Because I would say that my in my time as a principal, and it was quite a lovely time. <laughs> um, I loved it. Actually, I think I have a surreal uh, moment uh, about like how it was a great fun time. We laughed a lot. I cried a lot. Great. But there was a moment. <laughs> Where I was like, I came to appreciate what I would, what what we would call, what we would label as dissidents in like change management, right? Like people who raise concerns or flag or like push or challenge. And like in the, you know, in the earlier part of my leadership, I was like, oh, troublemakers, right? Like, <laughs> but then it was like, no, the voices, those voices actually are, help me think through things better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, when you ascribe race to it, when you ascribe gender to it, when you ascribe all the other is you know, the other identity markers to it, then it becomes more late. Yeah. But what you make me think of is we um, we ask for folks to like write in if you have questions. Um, and so we try to address them. You make me think of 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 the the one we have for today who we center a lot of our arch. This whole thing is about centering on the experiences. Hold on, um, hold on, Barca, before we go into that, oh, I, Erica, did you say what did you do? Like, oh. I, I just want to know, like, what did you do? Did you have a conversation with him? Did you, because this is also something we talk about on the show, how much of the work, how much of the burden we're going to shoulder and showing you and teaching you what, why what you just did was problematic. So like, what was your response? Did you have that conversation with him or like, how did that turn out? Yeah, just really quickly. This, so this person had a bit of a reputation. So I, I was I was actually surprised that he took it this far in a team meeting, hmm. but unfortunately had a brand as being someone who, let's just say, did not necessarily overly advocate for the cause of women and people of color, much less women of color in the organization that I worked okay. in at the time. Um, so this goes back to Blanca's question about, I think part of my journey has also been about figuring out where do I expend my limited energy in terms of doing mm-hmm. the work work. I can't save everybody. And some Mm -hmm. people are too far gone for me to have to try to climb that mountain. Mm -hmm. What I did do was talk to the friend who called to ask her, you know, tell me kind of sort of reactions in the room, you know, who was in the room so I can know who I need to do damage control with. And I will just say, not in in an immediate time frame, but uh, probably about three months later, I had the occasion to run into him and I actually did, because this is who I am, I, we were having a conversation about something because he was he came to my department to visit. And I, you know, just said to him at the end of the conversation, you know, if you see anything that you have feedback on or you think we could be doing differently than we're doing, you know, I would actually appreciate hearing that. And I promise I won't take out a knife and fork. Oh, <laughs> and, I, and I walked away and I literally, I caught a glimpse of him looking at me like, wait, wait a minute, wait, you know, <laughs> that was his team meeting and it's private and it's his cabinet and whatever. Mm. But I, I just, because honestly, in my mind, like I do make assessments and judgments on, is this person salvageable in mm. the time that I possibly have to work with them? And if I ascertain no, I kind of redirect my actions to other people, maybe around yeah. them, who yeah. are also decision makers. Who it's just better uses of my time. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So he. So you didn't. You didn't have to confront it um, directly. One, like you, you made the judgment that that was not going to be a productive use of your time. But you Correct. let. Uh, you let my man's know that you oh, knew. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. And reached out to the other couple people in his cabinet that I was either currently related to or. 
I made an extra effort to build relationships with people that I thought I might need to get things from or who might have control of decisions that would impact my department. Yeah. Made sure that I kept those people on my radar so that they, through personal experience, could be like, what are you talking about? She's fine. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Love that. It's like the that. real C suite of New York. Like, instead of real wow. housewives. <laughs> and I just can't imagine, like, the, them, like, doing the interviews. Like, can you believe? Like, what right. you And then they go to the moment and then they're <laughs> him. And it's like, yo, they're listening. You know, like, if you watch the pillow talk, everybody's like, yes, you must read him. Right. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. That's I, so I, hilarious. New storyline. Listen, stay tuned. I got another one coming up. Uh, the real thing. I love it. I love it. Because oh I can't relate God. to the other ones. I watch it for pure entertainment, but I think I can relate to like the real C suites of of this is I how you do podcast, Blanca. That's you yes, guys. Yes. Let me pull That's out a, a good way. And a knife. <laughs> um so this goes to, so okay, so so we center, so as I was saying, we center our experiences around women of color. Um but we did get a, a listener uh in writing in with a question um and is a white woman and so want to bring this to the space because we do have listeners who are not women of color, right, who are invited in. And this makes me think of, um, to your point, is what is the work of the people who are in the rooms making decisions? And if it's folks of color, like how are we looking out for each other? But if you're white and you're in that space and you hear this, what is your role? So let's listen. To, this is her question. And this is uh, our first question from a white right, woman, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'm a white woman, pro- nonprofit. I'm a white woman at a nonprofit CEO. I recognize that I need a diverse group of voices at the table in order to completely meet the needs of our staff and the people we serve. So I've made it a priority to hire women of color in leadership positions to help guide our organization. That said, I'm having a personal and private reaction to the way uh, one of my executives communicates to her team and other senior management staff in our office using, quote, B instead of, quote, M or, quote, are in formal settings. When I'm alone with her and we're discussing issues, I don't even think about it. But when others are around, I worry they think she's less competent. Nobody has expressed this to me, but I worry nonetheless. This is my issue, not hers. I recognize that. I also recognize that my worry might really be how our style, how her style reflects on me. Thoughts on how I can get to the bottom of my reaction and just embrace her style of communication. Wow. Erica. <laughs> Look what you said, Erica. What I know. What Erica? I was in DC area for a little uh, area for, for a bit. Like Erica. <laughs> um, so first off, I want to commend you guys for having this balanced perspective because I think you know, having the show that you have focused on women of color doesn't just mean talking to women of color. It also means engaging and embracing others around us who can who can make the path easier for us to walk. Right. Yeah. Um, I think listening to this, I think the first things that come up for me, and I, and I have to check myself on this just as a leader often too, when I have those moments, like, you know, the first thing I'm thinking about is, is this, sty- is it really stylistic to her point or is it having some kind of negative consequence on the work we're trying to achieve? Like mm. definable, tangible, quantifiable, right? Like, is is this use of shorthand or lingo or just an easier way of speaking somehow negatively impacting the work? And honestly, my experience as a leader has been as long as it isn't negatively impacting the work and people don't feel discomforted by it, which it doesn't sound like people have expressed they do, I let it ride. 
right? Because mm-hmm. style is style is uh, you know, especially in the nonprofit sector, it, it's like half the battle of getting stuff done because it's not the pay we give people. And, yeah, and it's sure. not the accolades because we don't give those enough to everybody doing the work. So I think that's number one. I think number two, there's there's an acknowledgement by this person submitting the letter. And I just want to call that out and, and thank her. Like th- there's some work she has to do. And it sounds like she recognizes like there's some looking in the mirror versus looking out the window. I'll use the Jim Collins reference work mm-hmm. that she needs to be doing to really just just discern for herself. Like what what is the negative connotation she thinks this has on her her brand her organization yeah it could be her blowing something out of proportion because she actually hasn't sat down to try to really think it through um and we all do this in life right where we're like oh my god this is going to be terrible but then when we actually quiet ourselves and really think about but what does terrible actually mean Mm -hmm. we then realize it's not terrible it's just different Right. Oh, I love and, that question. What does terrible actually mean? Right. right? Yeah. And, and and different isn't always terrible, but I think the human psyche, especially when you're talking about differences between, you know, races and classes and how people communicate, I think sometimes different is equated to terrible just right off the bat. Just like mm-hmm. this isn't like I would do it. So it's bad. It's got to be bad. So I would actually push her to like really think in terms of looking inward to figure out like, you know, what is it that I'm so afraid might be negatively connotated to my brand or my my organization. And then to really look at that list and think, is that terrible? Because it probably isn't. And then the last thing I would say is if she finds herself still thinking this way, I do think part of doing the work is having the uncomfortable conversation in the most humane way possible. Because I think what ends up happening when you sit with this type of an issue and you have tried to deal with it, but you still find it bubbling up to the surface and you don't you don't address it, it actually colors other aspects of how you're going to work with this person in ways you don't even realize, whether it's, you know, being frustrated by them or starting to think things they're doing or not trusting things they're doing as being kind of sort of right judgment, right practice. It shows up in ways that just becomes this like elephant in the room. And so I would actually urge her, if she's really struggling and she can't figure this out to, to seek out help and counsel somewhere, whether it's talking to someone who has expertise in DEI and maybe helping her think this through on a deeper level. Maybe it's talking to another leader who she thinks is also trying to engage in this practice of creating a diverse enough C-suite team and seems to be doing it well, maybe confiding in them with some counsel to try to get some advice on how to handle it. But I think she's got to really do some more work here in thinking about this and not jumping to the conclusion that this is somehow harmful for her reputation or the organization Mm -hmm. she's running. Yeah, so you're not advocating that she talk to the woman, this woman of color um, in her organization about this issue. Unless this woman's performance is somehow not meeting muster, yeah. I don't think it's for this woman of color to have to do the work that this leader is clearly demonstrating she needs to do herself first. Yeah. I, I think right. she needs to exhaust every possible angle of doing the work herself before she puts this burden on that woman's back. Yeah. That, and that's like, that's the part of the, I mean, in the, in the actual piece, she's like, I'm trying to figure out for myself, right? Like, what is it? She's like, I'm having a personal and private reaction to the communication. So one of the things that whenever I've done workshops is like, so what, what's the work you have to do, right? Like, what is it that you have to do? Because this is what ends up happening is that sometimes we get spoken to about the way we show up 
And I have been fully intentional about the way I show up in the workspaces, right? Like sometimes it is that I'm not going to code switch, right? Mm -hmm. So now I get spoken to because I'm not speaking what? Go ahead, say it, right? Standard English, go ahead, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and those things. And so it it always, um, it just makes me think that how do you keep that as your own work and not necessarily her work, right? Which is what you're saying, Erica. And, And this is just, what it looks like for us in workspaces that somebody always comes and speaks to us and then it results in a culture fit uh, issue. It results in a, you're not, you know, like when you speak that way, it lacks clarity. And so therefore your communication or lack of clarity and communication impacts your work this way. And sometimes there's like justification. It's like, well, no, what's the discomfort for you? Um, And is the discomfort for you that I actually decided to authentically show up to work And and I will speak in a way that like I'll speak to my homegirls at you know at home because I'm I'm tired of shape shifting. I've done that through, mm-hmm. all the categories, through all the degrees, through all the classes to my to get to this spot actually. Yeah. So now I am actually liberated and free to be me, right? And so right and, and um, like being from yeah. the south and being from a place that has you know well lots of places not just the south New York even you know has very clear dialect right. you know rules and guidelines that 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 we speak in and I have girlfriends who have law degrees who are doctors um who could run circles around anyone as far as the actual work is concerned when you talk to them they're talking in their southern you know dialect style and it, it it's not a reflection of their intelligence it's not a reflection of their ability to actually do the work this mm-hmm. is how they speak right this is where they're from um this is how they communicate and um no amount of conversation about code switching or about showing up in a particular way is going to change that mm-hmm. if it was it, it would have done it already okay. through their law school process or their you know med school residency and all that kind of stuff and it didn't it didn't change and they don't feel the need to change. And so there's no conversation, in my opinion, I don't think there's any conversation that this, this woman, this white woman would be able to have with, um, with the woman that is going to change the way that, that she shows up. It is, is just, um, I guess, inherent to who she is. Mm -hmm. Um, And as long as it's not, uh, if it's not a conversation about the actual work, then it's a conversation about something that's much more problematic and basically her asking her why she can't code switch, I guess. And um, I think it's the, the, the woman, the CEO's responsibility. She says that no one has brought this up to her. Um, Um, And that it's it's but she worries about how the woman could be perceived. And my thing is, it is your responsibility as the leader to make sure that the people who are working for her and working for you take this woman seriously, regardless, no matter what. So Mm -hmm. if it does come up, it's her responsibility to shut that stuff down, like Mm -hmm. literally shut it down. Do not allow it to be an excuse for anyone for why they don't follow this woman's leadership and her directives. That's your Mm -hmm. job. As the CEO, so that's right. my consent. And, and Ray, I mean, one of the things she also says is, "I also recognize that my worry might really be how her style reflects on me." Mm-hmm. And my thinking is, what it does. If you're saying in your first, uh, you know, in the opening, is that you you have a uh, diverse group of voices, then going beyond diversity is about belonging and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And the moment you start to thwart and you start to shut down how I can communicate my communication style, I no longer feel a sense of belonging. So yeah. how do you move your wherever, you know, your your work 
uh, to go beyond the diverse voices to really respecting the way in which the different voices show up, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really key. Um, Mm -hmm. And that it's not, it's going to pose challenges and it's going to, you know, like there are things that trigger me, right? Like there are just things that are triggering and you start to identify these things. And I think that's the part that, you know, that's our mirror work. That's our self work that we do um, before anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So often, and this is a a big conversation in DEI spaces as well, as these different companies and organizations recognize that they need more people at the table who do not look like them or, um, you know, what the traditional C-suite looks like. They say, oh, you know, we need a DEI person. Oh, we need to be more diverse. But what are the spaces that we are in? inviting people of color into. Oftentimes we're inviting them into these violent spaces that um, are damaging to who they are. And so I'm glad that this listener recognizes the need for diversity. Mm -hmm. But to your point, Blanca, do you recognize the need for belonging and inclusion? Because without that, you're just inviting people of color into spaces that are not prepared to receive them um, as they are. And, Mm -hmm. and, And that's a problem. Um, so thank, That's right. thank you for that question. I'm sure you are not alone in your, I'm talking to the listener now, right. yeah. in, in your wonderings about these kinds of things. And, you know, again, it's the first question that we've answered from a white woman because um, this space was intentionally built to be a support for women of color. But we recognize that, you know, white people are listening to this. We are glad you're listening to this. We invite you into this space as listeners, hoping that um, you're going to take this information and be best as the first lady of of the country likes to say, that you're going to take this information and and, and be best. So um, thank you. Um, Erica, this has been one of my favorite conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so, so much for making time, like I said, in the middle of uh, an, an actual pandemic and crisis. Um, it's, it's been so valuable and I know our listeners are going to get so much from it. Um, what is it? What is your affirmation? What do you want to leave our listeners with um, today? Affirmation. Yeah. Uh, so there's a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Um, I like it because it's a book that really forces you to think about how do you discipline yourself to create space, to lean into thinking differently about the work you do, in this case, um, maybe the life you're living. Um, and this author at one point uh, shifted from being an author and debuted a feature film, and she read a review that essentially was one of the most scathing reviews she'd ever gotten. And essentially what she decided after reading that review was she was going to use that type of sharp-edged feedback to help fuel her creativity. Mm. Um, If you have any folks out there who are like fans of superhero movies, like thinking of it as an infinity stone, like something that like Mm. charges you up. And so she decided, and this is a quote, artistic people must learn how to emotionally guard themselves against the tides of negativity, both internal and external. And I actually would just shift that quote to say, you know, people of color, but particularly women of color, must constantly be on guard to understand how to emotionally protect them and defend themselves from tides of negativity, external and internal. Um, Because that's just what life is going to be about for us, unfortunately, facing more moments when we feel like the world is trying to build, tear us down versus build us up. 
mm-hmm. and just knowing that's what we're going to encounter and continuing to build the resources in the other spaces we need to be safe in those moments is, is the affirmation I want to leave with. Yes. Thank you Yay. so much, Erica. Thank, <laughs> thank you, guys. Yes. You are amazing. And thank you, Lissandra, although we didn't hear you. Thank you. Time. <laughs> okay, so reflecting on this conversation with Erica Hamilton, again, one of my favorite conversations, um, I think something that really stood out for me and, and really both of us was this idea of a portfolio life. Mm-hmm. And and what that means, I'm going to have to look. I know she quoted the exact person that she got that from, and I'm definitely going to have to look that up and find that book. Um, but when I when I sat down with Erica for the very first time and she and I had this conversation, that's it was like a light bulb aha moment for me. And it was almost like giving myself permission to take myself out of this mm-hmm. martyrdom, um, you know, habit that particularly Mm -hmm. women of color tend to fall into and that I was definitely in um in in the place where I was working when I when I spoke with her and it was like giving myself permission to step out of that I don't have to live in that space I don't owe it to anyone I can think about the life that I want and design it and ask myself specific questions. How much do I need to make? Where do I want to allocate my time? And how do I, over the course of months or maybe even a couple of years, however long it takes, how do I make sure I'm setting myself up to be deliberate about putting my time and energy in the places where I actually want it to exist? And that was just so powerful for me. Yeah, no, and I and it makes me think like, you know, just having spoken to people and just even reflecting on myself, it's like we're all waiting for like this moment or like something traumatic has to happen. And how are we more planned and thoughtful about it, right? Um, it just makes me think, you know, oftentimes we talk ourselves out of out of goals and mm. things and factors and real life factors come up, but how do we in the absence of all of that, how do we make sure that there's still a plan in place or that we're thinking through this um, in a methodical way. And I think when she when she speaks to like all of the things to think about, like what does it look like to look at your budget and not look at your budget for survival, but like what would it look like for me to create a life where I need X amount of money, yeah. right? What would it look like for me to cut some things out, not necessarily for spending, for saving money, but like so that I could have three months off yeah. from working that I could have three months off to do whatever or that I could travel, right? And so like whatever the thing is, is how do we become really intentional about it um, before the trauma, before the actual event happens, yeah, right? Yeah, like before um, the trauma, right? Like it doesn't have to be yeah. this big event. Okay, so Blanca, like where, where are we trying to go next year? for the summer where where should we let's take woke at work on the road and design a life that allows us to make this like international like oh i think people in the caribbean need a woke at work live don't you i think you know what (laughs) i went to um hertz and i think they they definitely need some of that right there where we stayed it wasn't enough for us actually vacation and more of us working yeah less of us vacationing yeah um that's what we actually, that's what we pay attention to. But anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. Where are we going to go? I don't know. Where, I don't know. We have to think about that. That might be, listen, that might be how we wrap up the season is our goals for, for the next one. Right? <laughs> for the next yeah. One. Okay. That was a great interview, though. Um, 
And yeah, it was she was she's Erica's great. Yeah. Erica is great. So thanks, Erica. Yay! We trying to stay woke at work. We trying to stay woke at work. How about you? You trying to stay woke at work? If you trying to stay woke at work, stay true, stay true. We trying to stay woke at work. We trying to stay woke at work. How about you? You trying to stay woke at work? Woke at work. Woke at work. Stay true, stay true. Shout out to the North Star for making Woke at Work possible. Um, if you are not a member of the North Star, you can head over to thenorthstar.com, create a, an account, and enjoy some of the paid content in addition to the free content that we offer. Um, thank you to the thousands of members who currently support this work that make this podcast, um, other podcasts, and all types of media that we offer Speaking Truth to Power possible. So again, that's thenorthstar.com. Uh, we really appreciate your support. Support. I also want to thank Lysandra, our podcasting director, Willis, our producer, who is also responsible for this awesome music, as well as Tone and everyone else behind the scenes um, who make this podcast work. Now, if you want to support us, please go to your favorite podcasting app and subscribe and please leave a review. We'd appreciate it so much if you could leave your best review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If any of your other podcasting apps accept reviews, by all means, leave one there too. So remember, whether you're listening on Instagram, the North Star website, or wherever you listen to this, we appreciate you showing us your love by going to a podcasting app, subscribing, and leaving a review. Thanks so much, y'all, for all the love and support. And don't forget to tell a friend. We appreciate you.